0: Welcome back to Business Keeps On Dancing, and we're back with a brand new podcast. So this podcast series is going to be called Under The Spotlight. And really what we want to do is shine a light on the people who are traditionally behind the scenes, putting together a lot of your favorite festivals and start to understand what their secrets to success have been. So today's guest, I'm super excited to introduce uh, John Drape. So John's one of the most well-respected and known figures in the music and events industry and the chances are, if you've been to the festival this summer, John's probably been behind one of them. So we're going to chat about everything from the Hacienda through to the inception of Warehouse Project, all the way through to him starting festivals such as Snow Bombing and Festival Number no. 6. So lots to cover in this episode. It's a great conversation, we could have spoke for hours, um, so sit back and enjoy. <music> Oh, oh, Welcome back to Business Keeps on Danton. This is our Spotlight series, and we're going to be interviewing some of the most successful people in the music and the events industry, finding out their journey, their secrets to success um, and how they've done it. So we're joined by a real heavyweight today um, in John Drape. Uh, John's the founder of Avenger number four, and that's the team responsible for the production of many of, of your, your favorite shows. You've, you're probably all very familiar with them. Everything from Warehouse Project, Blue Dot, Lost Village, Parklife, Kendall, Snowbomb and Escape to Freight Island. You name it, John's done it. Uh, But John really has been the driving force behind many of your favorite events and festivals. John has really seen it all. Everything from the boom of the Hacienda. He's hosted seminal gigs with the likes of Oasis, started uh, part of the team that started the Revolutionary Warehouse Project. And he's really been a big part of the explosion of the festival scene in in recent years. And John's really been um, a big part of innovating in, in the music and events industry for Decades, and I can't wait to find out how you've how you've achieved it all because you've been a very very um, busy guy. So yeah, John, I hope I've I've done you justice there.
1: Yeah, thanks, Sean. Yeah, very good.
0: <laughs> so yeah, how's how's things with you? Thank you for coming in.
1: All good. Yeah, you know, we've uh, we're, we're coming through the pandemic uh, in, in some you know some reasonable shape. Uh, I'd say we've had um, a, a compressed festival season, uh, which was extremely challenging. Um, um, but quite satisfying. So we, we got away a couple of shows, Lost Village and, and Park Life. Um, and now we're in the thick of the Warehouse Project season.
0: Nice. Busy, busy then, I imagine. Um, so what I wanted to do, because I think you've been around for, for so many really se- seismic moments and in, in the industry, but I wanted to go back to to where it all started, where you kind of first dip your toe in, into the world of events and, and how you first got into it.
1: Well, I I was obsessed growing up as a as a as a teenager. I was quite unusual. I was obsessed by theatre. I think it, it was from going to the theatre with my parents at quite a young age, and just that whole um, experience and sort of immersive experience of being in a theatre and being sort of transported away to this other world. I, you know, I was really quite taken with it, and um, I spent most of my uh, early teens helping out at a local theatre, and I was absolutely convinced my, my career uh, and my future was, was in theatre, which was quite unusual for most teenagers. I, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, and, um, you know, I was I, I was that obsessed with it. I ended up going to the Palace Theatre in Manchester and doing, doing work experience there. Um, got a place at theatre school, but uh, I left school at 15 and I couldn't get it funded, so I... Um, I ended up starting work at the Palace Theatre at, at 15 years old and um, started out as a stagehand um, and then started being a, a lighting technician. Um, and this was in the late 80s. And um, further down Whitworth Street was, was was a certain club called the Hacienda. Um, and around then, of course, you know, the the late 80s, uh, you know, Manchester was, was about to take off. Um, and and my head was turned and um, after a couple of years of working in various theatres, so uh, the Library Theatre and the Opera House around Manchester, uh, I, I decided I wanted to venture out into into the world of music and um, went to work at a, um, a Manchester lighting Mental company. Um, and worked there for a couple of years. And I really sort of learned the tools of the trade when it came to lighting, and then managed to tour with bands like Inspirable Carpets and the Stereo MCs, did some Happy Monday shows, and we, we also supplied equipment to the Hacienda. So I was really in the thick of sort of the Manchester um, music explosion.
0: And what was that like at the time? Because I always find it intriguing looking back on, on really big cultural shifts that, that have happened and big moments in, in the history of, of the industry. Do you, do you feel at the time like it's something big's happening or is it not until you look back and what's happened and you think, wow, that was actually such a big movement?
1: No, I think, you know, as a teenager, you know, it felt quite extraordinary. And, you know, the opportunities that I had working with the bands that I had at the time, it, it really did feel like, you know, Manchester was at the centre of the universe yeah. because every magazine, there was no internet in the late 80s so you know every magazine music magazine that you looked at you know the happy mondays would be on the front cover the stone roses would be the inspired carpets you know it was manchester bands headlining shows at gmex they were headlining festivals like 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 reading in glastonbury um so you really did feel like you were in the middle of of this huge music explosion and 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 to be able to to work with some of those bands and and be part of that, you know, was quite extraordinary.
0: And I imagine you built some some really important relationships at your time working there. I believe that's where you met Sam and Sasha.
1: I did. So yes, after after working at a lighting rental company doing tours, I decided um, touring wasn't for me. Um, And I wanted to be based more in Manchester. And I uh, I wrote a letter to Rob Gretton, who who managed um, uh, New Order, who who became a really, really close friend of mine, uh, asking him for a job at the Hacienda uh, and giving him a reason why I should be working at the Hacienda. And uh, he took me on and um, I I was production manager at the Hacienda. So I I looked after most of the, the live aspects of the club. So any touring bands that came in, the promoters, sound and lighting equipment for the club. Um, and also private hires. So um, whilst the club is, you know, rather infamous and, you know, for its, its success around Acid House and being the explosion of house music, it certainly uh, wasn't commercially successful. And one of the things I was trying to do was to, to drive some, some revenue, um, and whether that be promote additional nights or hire the club out. And um, one day, Sasha came in to hire the club out and um, um he was a you know a pretty underground student promoter uh, at the time and uh, he came in and well i think we hired the club for him uh, on a monday night um to do a night called scandalous um so uh, that was my first first meeting with sasha and then purely coincidentally sam was a student uh, and, and he was working with a couple of pals and he came in uh, to hire the club as well. So they, they both hired the club before they went on to sort of bigger and better things.
0: Amazing. So as they say, the rest, the rest is history from there. At what point did you, because you're working for the Hacienda at this point, at what point did you start to think I want to branch out and, and do things on my own and really get that, I guess, entrepreneurial spirit.
1: Well, I was, I was you know, I was so committed to the club, you know, Robbie Managed New Order was, was funding the club, you know, we, we had a really close, you know, community of people and we were doing some really you know great great shows at the uh at the house at that point we had you know people like the oasis and, and the chemical brothers coming through we'd done the Brit pop explosion um, um and most of those bands came, came through and performed at the club uh, and I really didn't you know see anything beyond the hacienda it was more the hacienda coming to an end which um you know it, it did quite suddenly uh in 97. We we delivered the fifteenth um, birthday party, um, which was a, which was a great you know typically you know quite production heavy extravagant uh, hacienda event uh, in the May, um, and, and and then two months later it, it had shut and and, and wouldn't reopen. Um, so um, I I ended up staying on at the club afterwards working with Rob because uh, the plan was to try and get, to try trying to reopen the venue, but it. it for various reasons, that didn't work out. So I ended up staying on, helping out. We had to sell assets, so I was flogging the sound system, I was flogging the lights, I was <laughs> flogging anything I could to try and to try and keep the bills paid, while 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 the building was sold in a orderly fashion. But while that was going on, I was trying to build my next step in my career which was trying to use those skills that I'd, I'd learned at the Hacienda, which was a bit of everything really. So I was a production manager, so I knew quite a lot about lighting, very little bit about sound, um, but um, a lot about the whole live experience. So worked with various people at that point to be a freelance production manager. And um, we did things like the Commonwealth Games handover ceremony and did, did, started to branch out into the world of outdoor events at that point um, and um, did that for two or three years um, until um, around 2000, 2001.
0: So, yeah, don't, don't do things in halves. then <laughs> straight straight into the Commonwealth. Did you feel like you had like a clear path you wanted to go down was there was there an end goal in mind or were you just finding your feet with
1: no i mean certainly at that point i, I was you know i knew what i was good at um but i didn't know what what the end goal was um and in 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 2000 we'd sold, we'd sold the club by then rob had quite suddenly died in 99 uh after we'd got through all the messy business of the club um which is a bit of a turning point really um because you know I'd worked really closely with Rob. He, he he'd brought New Order from being you know Warsaw into Joy Division into New Order and then suddenly Rob Rob, Rob wasn't there. So I, I went travelling. So I, I did my gap year quite late. So I did my gap year when I was being um twenty-eight. Um so um so went travelling for six months, came back with 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 a desire to build something so I came back uh, hooked up with um, an old friend of mine, Steve Smith. Uh, Steve had worked with Fat City Records um, and delivered a number of club nights at the Hacienda, Find the Fat Club nights. He'd brought people like African Bambarta over and, and, and done some really uh, interesting uh, uh, shows there. And we started a project he'd already sort of kicked about, which was something called Ear to the Ground. Um, and we started Ear to the Ground as this event um, do everything for everybody. Events agency, and we work with brands, uh, delivering club events. We delivered outdoor events. We did things like doves and badly drawn boy in Castlefield Arena. Um, and Steve had uh, already started doing repercussion. So repercussion or de-percussion should I say, was an outdoor music festival, free free festival in Castlefield. He'd started that in '97. I'd I'd helped him out a little bit with it. But when I got back from travelling, we. Um, we we pushed that forward onto a different level, um, so so we increased that uh, into sort of about a thirty thousand capacity free festival. Um, when, when did
0: festivals start coming into the mix? Because I imagine there was the boom of clubland, and I know festivals have, have always been around, but there was definitely a point when it really went into yeah. Society. When I was really
1: into that outdoor, you know, you know that outdoor production, um, I Steve introduced me to a friend of his called, called Gareth Cooper. Um, who had started this festival called Snowbombing um, in the French Alps um, and Gareth de Mongeau, the snow Snowbombing and he it, it had, it's fair to say, some logistical production issues. Uh, I got the phone call um, and I went over and delivered the production for year two of Snowbombing. Um, I think that must have been 2001 um, and I've done it for 20 years. Um, since the so snowballing was my first first festival. Uh, we were running re- re- deep percussion at the time um, as a free festival uh, in Castlefield. Um, and then over the next few years, we started uh, picking up other festivals, started doing the production on field day in, in, L- in London. Um, and I started to get a little bit of a reputation as being a bit of a festival specialist, um, which led to me well, led, led to the sort of beginning of the, the, the warehouse project um, in sort of 2005, I'm going to say 2006.
0: So going from from clubs to international festivals, what what are some of the challenges in transitioning into to that?
1: I mean, moving from indoors to outdoors is is, is a big challenge and, you know, festivals when you've got multi day festivals and you're looking after that amount of people, not just for five or six hours in a club, but for days and the sleeping on site and partying on site. Um, it, is, it is very different, very different indeed. And of course, when you move outside, you've got a lot of external challenges um, which you just can't control and, and the weather being being the biggest one of those.
0: So from Snowbombing, how did you expand into to more festivals then? Was it something that came from your team, did you club with other people? What, what was that process like?
1: Well, I, we started to get a reputation ear to the ground for, you know, for, for, for delivering a really quality service. Um, and uh, sort of it was around that period I tried to get the structure of what a perfect festival production team would look like, um, um, which, which helped. because um, so I think it's, you know, the, the festival industry in the early noughties was still relatively, you know, in its infancy. If you think last time we only started in the, in the early seventies, you know, festivals proper didn't start really till the eighties. <clears throat> and, you know, it's only been since the noughties that they've really developed to the scale that we see today. Um, so, you know, we got a reputation for delivering, you know, a quality production service um and so sort of that 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 opened the doors so we started by doing field day festival um with marcus and spyro um in, in london and some of the time we got the call was because people had had a bad experience um with the show where it hadn't gone right and hadn't met their expectations so 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 we we ended up coming in uh, and looking at how we could improve it um and um you know off the back of that you know, we we met the guys from Kendall Calling, um, started delivering Kendall Calling, um, and you know, as with a lot of things within our industry, a lot of it is about building relationships with people, and off the back of building those relationships, you you end up generating opportunities, um, and you know, so for instance, with Andy and Ben from Kendall, um, you know. They started Kendall at a very early age. Um, we weren't involved uh, at the beginning of their festival career, um, but we came into Kendall Calling at a, you know at quite a crucial juncture when it when it was growing. It was growing quite quickly, and, and we helped support support that growth. But working with those guys, they were cle- clearly very um, driven and had lots more ideas. And off the back of that, we collaborated together to to, to start doing shows at Jodrell Bank. Um, and we delivered five, five or six years of concert series, um, called Life from Jodrell Bank. Um, with a, a variety of artists, uh, it was single stage, uh, concert format where we did everyone from the Flaming Lips to Elbow, to the Halley Orchestra, New Order along the way, um, because they were, well, that ended up morphing into Blue Dot and you know that's the festival that you know we, we are all very proud of um you know it's got quite unique uh positioning blue dot you know was one of those collaborations um just out of you know that long-term relationship of working with someone
0: it feels like a domino effect doesn't it like the, mm-hmm. all these people you're meeting on the journey are leading to all these different opportunities going back to one of those first dominoes as you said before which was sasha and sam um meeting them in the hacienda that then led to the warehouse project what what was the inception of that like how did it come about
1: well i got a call one day off sash um saying this he, he he just left sankey's which was quite seismic i mean Sash going into sankey's was quite seismic because it was him joining forces with dave vincent um and they were at my in my hacienda time were arch enemies <laughs> um and, you know david promoted the uh, ministry of sound he was David from Callas, uh, as he was known, and um, um, you know Sasha did her thing, David did that, but they came together and uh, and you know they they took on um, Sankeys, which was a well loved Manchester venue, and 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 you know did some great things down there. Um, and as quickly as it started, it seemed to be over um, with, 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 with Sasha leaving, David still being there, um, but with Sam leaving with Sasha and um yeah i got the phone call saying we've got this idea we're going to do a series an annual series of shows called the warehouse project where we where we go into a warehouse each year um and do a load of raves are you interested and so, i'm always interested in a challenge so um um have you have you got anywhere in mind and so she was like yep, yeah, let's uh, let's go and have a look at boddington's brewery so um so off we go to have a look at Boddington's Brewery, which had only recently closed, and um, we have a walk around this, you know, this very old, um, um, in pretty poor condition, in half a state of demolition and strip out, um, a uh, you know, an iconic building uh, with a view to turn it into a entertainment venue for three months, um, and. You know, I, I jumped at the chance. I didn't really think um, that, you know, 10 years after the Hacienda closing, I would end up being back delivering electronic music, doing raves again, essentially. And um, it, 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 was a, it was a great challenge. It was unlike any other challenge I'd had at that point, which was taking on a, a building and trying to turn it into a safe, enjoyable venue.
0: Has anyone else done that at the time? The idea of these pop up? Well,
1: Sasha, Sasha, Sasha and David had done a, a an event previously in, in, in a warehouse, uh, which had, which had worked really well. But that was a one off. So people had done one offs, but trying to do a series in a limited period of time, I think it was completely, completely unique. Um, and, you know, the challenges that go with that are completely unique um, because you're taking on a industrial venue that was never designed for public use. Um, You're trying to keep your costs manageable because you're only in there for three months so it's not like you can spend a huge amount of money so you can't install permanent toilets, you can't you know you can't spend the money you would do if you're normally building a venue but clearly you've got to make it meet all the standards and licensing requirements that a normal venue has to
0: yeah so it feels like a a bit of a risk going into it oh it's a massive risk
1: absolutely and you know we we went into into that boddington's you know with 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 an awful lot of enthusiasm and um you know we we were relatively confident in what we were doing but i don't think we were you know, quite aware of some of the challenges we, we, we encountered uh, encountered along the way. Um, you know, the opening night we had a, a huge water pipe burst behind the main bar. So there was water spraying everywhere. You know, try try taking on these buildings where you don't know exactly know where all the services are, and you've not installed everything yourself. Comes with a bit of the unknown, and certainly we we, we found that unknown. Um, and I think you know the the, the most well known issue was was around noise, where we where we'd done everything you'd normally do with a noise management plan, predicted noise levels off site, um, and everything was fine, um, except there were two issues. One um, was the fact that the prism, strange ways or HMMP Manchester, um, was getting quite uh, high noise levels. So the prisoners were enjoying the warehouse project. (laughs) Uh, But the other one was the, 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 um, uh, the actual roof of of the main uh, dance space acted as a loudspeaker and managed to project the noise about a kilometre in a westerly direction to a tower block. And we got these complaints in from this tower block and I. No one could believe it um, until I went over there, went up to the 14th floor of Riverbank Tower in Greengate. And it was almost like you're on the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a battle. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it had some great, you know, we had some great, uh, uh, great shows in there. You know, Calvin Harris did, I think, the first New Year's Eve there. and It was one of his first ever shows. Oh. We did some Manchester bands, so we like, did things like The Fall in there. Um, you know we had these challenges along the way, um, but you know it certainly was the the foundations for the warehouse project, which you know is clearly a, a Manchester institution, and is probably going to out outnumber the, the years that the hacienda operated for.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, and to have been around for well, and been a big part of two of those those huge moments must have been must have been mad. Did you have a feeling before you went in? Like, do you get a gut feeling before you go into these some of, some of these projects that although it feels like a risk, you feel like it is going to redefine the, the space where you're going to be doing something quite special?
1: You do, yeah. you know, definitely after after. Yes, operating for some time after, you know, after working for so long, um, you definitely get a feel and, you know, I suppose another Another feel I got for doing a festival um, or, or yeah, an event which sort of broke a little bit of ground was when Gareth Cooper from from Snowbombing called me up and said, John, do you want to come and have a look at Port Merion in North Wales with me? Um, and, you know, I knew Port Merion uh, from being a kid and, and going on holiday in North Wales. Um, and we went over there and Gareth was like, you know, we need to do a festival here it's completely bonkers um what do you think and you know i told him what i thought i thought it's completely bonkers there's only a single track road in which is the same road out um oh yeah, whole, a,
0: am i right in saying there was just one road there's in? A, like, there's, all there's the one road in,
1: absolutely customers production emergency vehicles only only one road in um the whole of the site is built on a peninsula so there's nothing flat um and on two-thirds of the site you're surrounded by sea um and you know that but that didn't put us off so we uh, so we started festival number no. six off the back of that um which um i'm very proud of you know the the, the financial aspects of number no. six um leave something to be desired it was it was certainly never a commercially successful uh festival some years we 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 uh, we had some upside, certainly on other years, we had uh, considerable losses. But I think off the back of number six, we we, we were part of that um, change in what a music festival could be. Um, because I think, you know, up until the beginning of things like Wilderness, possibly all, Festival number six, festivals were quite crude. Um, they were, you know, for music fans, you know, they delivered, you know, superb production, you could go to Reading Festival, we could go to Glastonbury, but your, audio, your quality of experience as a customer in terms of toilets, showers, sleeping accommodation, left something to be desired. And what we tried to do with Festival Number no. 6 was try to reimagine what a music festival was. Um, and it and it didn't need to be necessarily just about music. So we tried to introduce, you know, quite a lot of arts and culture, um, which you'd you'd have seen at Glastonbury over the years, but do it in a much more boutique and and curated um, environment. And, you know, we brought some pretty incredible uh, performances together um, whilst having some pretty challenging uh, conditions. Um it was early September. We could only do the festival in early September because we had to do it in, in the downtime from the um uh tourist season. Um so we, we early September. Little did we know early September is also the tail end of the hurricane season in in the in the Caribbean. And we experienced more years of wet weather and tail end of hurricanes coming over the Atlantic and hitting North Wales than than than, than I care to remember, <laughs> and, and with that we we had a few issues.
0: Yeah, I imagine it was a tricky tricky time to navigate. Although the, the backdrop of that that festival was absolutely stunning, we were lucky enough to uh, to work with you guys on a few years for it, and there's there's nothing that I think that can rival that that site destination. But you're right, I feel like it started a. An expectation I think from festival goers that you you know, you don't just have to be shoved in a field and, and the music. I think the experience has become such a big a big part of that in, in festivals since since that point. So Escape to Freight Island is, is one of the biggest projects you've you've been involved in recently and that has really innovated in, in the space of F and B and really turning this this outdoor food hall market concept into something that's a lot more multi-art, multi-culture, multi-entertainment. I really haven't seen anything, anything done like it before and the the launch was was incredible and it's gone from strength to strength since open. So how did that, how did that come about? Where did the idea come from?
1: Well, Gareth Cooper, uh, who pops up uh, uh, quite a few times. There's a running theme here, isn't there? There there is. (laughs) (laughs) It's another another project Gareth and me have have worked very closely on. Mayfield Depot um, is a space that I've I've, I've known uh, and worked with for eight or nine years. Um, and we, we've got a bit of a history with that space. Me and Gareth were also shareholders of a, a business called Broadwick and um, Broadwick Venues took on the whole of Mayfield Depot. Um, and our first piece of work there was to um, make it safe enough to take shows um, and that led to the Warehouse Project um, uh, taking it on as its new home in 2019. But part of our vision for Mayfield Depot was that it should be more than just a music venue. Um, and that we had this rather unusual indoor outdoor space there, which we did we for um, F&B. Um, and we're taking it out to the market. We'd spoken to loads of different F&B operators and no one would would really take the challenge on. So me and Gareth were talking one day about it. And we basically came up um, with the idea that we should take it on. If no one else was going to take it on, we should we should take it on. And um, we started talking, collaborating with some other people who were a little bit more experienced in the F&B world than us. So Luke and Justin, the Unabombers, um, who have um, Morphed from being underground club DJs into being restaurateurs of note. Um, um, and Dan Morris, who had done an incredible job of uh, of taking on the Albert Hall with, with Joel uh, and turning that into a, a great music venue. So we started talking about what could we do with the space? And I think one of the things that we were talking about was one of the frustrations I have with, with music festivals is that you you spend all the year planning for a festival and, and that is your cycle. It is a, a you know, a, a yearly cycle. You never stop on a music festival. Um, and it's all about one weekend. And if your weather's poor that weekend, it's it's quite disappointing. Um, but the other thing with the music festival is that, you know, you, you put in so much work into one weekend and the amount of infrastructure, the amount of um, um, people who, who, who come together to build that site um, and then dismantle it again, you know, isn't really pushing all the sustainability buttons. And, you know, one of our, one of our chats was, wouldn't it be great to have a permanent festival site? And that essentially is sort of part of the story around Escape to Freight Island. And we'd started planning this in in, in 2019. So we'd we'd come up with a design in 2019 um, with a view to start building it early, early 2020. And of course, the the pandemic uh, hit in March. Um, And during that first lockdown, me, Gareth, Luke and Justin were on on Zooms talking about what we were going to do. We came up with the idea of recreating or or, or redesigning our outdoor area of of Freight Island um, and making it COVID secure, as we know now, um, and getting that built um, in the middle of 2020. So that's what we did.
0: The timing almost worked out quite well because with the nature of the first phase of it opening with it being Platform 15 to begin with, it was actually, um, you know, we we were working with you guys on the launch and I guess the challenge of launching a new venue and a new brand and everything in the middle of a pandemic was just a nightmare. But I feel like the timing almost panned out quite well in the first phase. I know there was, a unfortunately, you had to um, shut just before um, some of the indoor stuff opened, but it kind of felt like right place, right time.
1: Oh, but it was a lifesaver because... I mean, the, the you know the first half of 2020, you know, from February onwards, um, you know, I was in a cycle of you know postponing or cancelling festivals, um, which you know isn't as easy as just turning the light off. You know, the, the, there's there's an awful lot that goes into into that process, um, and um, I'd, I'd I'd been doing that for you know a couple of months not really knowing what we're going to do for the rest of the year and then we're having these background conversations about freight island and we decided to push the button and in june so when i'm normally building or delivering park life um i'm on site with 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 a 26 ton digger employing a lot of the people um that i would normally be on site at park life with But instead, we are building the outdoor area platform 15, as we called it uh, for Freight Island, and it was it was an absolute godsend, Um, you know, certainly for for me and the engine number four team, it it, it gave us a a project to to get our teeth into. Um, We we purposely employed all our our friends and, and, and contractors that had absolutely no work. So sound and lighting companies. Who, who weren't doing anything pivoted to be electrical contractors, or festival plumbers, did permanent plumbing, ground workers the same, staging companies and scaffolders. So we really brought all the experience and know how know how from the festival world into building um, Freight Island and. Uh, we had quite a uh, intense build schedule five weeks, but that's what we're used to, and we're working next to a building site. And people are saying you're never going to get that done in five weeks, but but but, but we turned it round, and um, you know it opened yeah, to to great success.
0: And was that another one of those projects where? it just it just felt like something different. As I said, you know, we were sat in a room with, with Luke and Luke was explaining the, the concept as, as eloquently as, as he always does. And I was like, this sounds insane. I just can't I can't I can't um, picture this kind of final vision that you've got. Because it just it sounds crazy. But, you know, it, as soon as it launched, everyone just got it. And it just kind of really hit a note with so many people. And I think there was, was such a big gap in the market for that type of space. Really, as I said, I've, I've not seen it done before. Did you? go into that with a a similar fire, similar fire in your belly, like what you had with the Hacienda and the Warehouse project, where it's like this, I really think this is going to stick.
1: I did. And I and, you know, going through the whole process and then building the the inside element, you know, it has been a, a great experience because never before have I built anything that's sort of semi-permanent. You know, the Wales project lasts for three months. But, you know, here, here we are building something which, you know, seems to have some significance. Um, and it's it, it's been a, what a wonderful journey. And as with, you know, a lot of the projects or, or the more successful projects I've been involved in, it's the sum of the parts. So it's not just about one individual. It's about a number of people coming together um, and bringing everything that they know and 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 their experience bringing that that to the table to create something that is 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 pretty unique and the great thing with, with Great Island is, is is we we don't stand still um, because we built it the way that we built it, it means we can keep on changing it, and with the people involved, we're always constantly trying to look at how we can improve it. And and, and the the three times store is not you know certainly not finished, and yeah, you know, only last week were we building a uh, a new mezzanine um, with with this groundbreaking new product as so a Manchester first. We're, we're all really excited and proud about that, um, so we can extend um freight island further so we can do more more interesting content
0: i saw some news about that with the um the materials that we use for the the flooring which which has won awards didn't it for
1: yeah so it's it's graphene and concrete mixed together so graphene is a super material that was invented at manchester university um and what we've done is, is is pour a slab of concrete where you normally have to reinforce it with uh rebar and fibers and cut it into slabs so it doesn't crack um but we poured this large um uh, 700 square meter slab of concrete with, with no reinforcement it's reinforced with graphene it's a it's manchester first and was on the freight island
0: Amazing. So what's, I know you're, you're a big part of the um, the Mayfield project as well. Um, so yeah, what's the future for, for, for that space for Freight Island?
1: Well, we're pushing forward. We've got, um, you know, the warehouse projects there for the next three months. But in January, we've got um, the space, which uh, is known as Archive during the warehouse project. We, we're going to set set to work on that, to make that into a, a semi-permanent music venue. Um, um, also for events. But I'm also really, really excited about the opportunity to deliver more training and job opportunity down at Mayfield. Um, you know, Mayfield's you know, one of the largest city centre regeneration projects um, outside of London. I think it might be the largest outside of London. And we've got this window of opportunity. So before everything is re- redeveloped and, and, and built upon, you know, we've got this incredible opportunity to, to use it. Um, and as part of that, I want to try and get as much benefit uh, as possible out of the space for the local community and for Manchester. You know, you know I'm a very proud Mancunian and, um, you know, I think it's one one way i can try and give a little bit back for the city so one of the things i really want to try and do down there is create training and job opportunities for young people to get into either the, the the hospitality or the festival and music industries um because you know we're down there we're on the edge of the city center you know we've got some socially deprived areas near us like Ardwick and gorton and what have you and if we can try and get 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 a platform down there where young people can come and get some experience uh, and move into our industry uh, that would be just wonderful
0: i feel like it's really needed off the back of covid and just how hard i have been hit with many people i imagine have probably left the industry full stop so it's about getting new oh absolutely new i into think the system as well
1: you know over the uh, the the challenging compressed festival period that, that we have just delivered you know one of the biggest challenges is around the um, staffing issue. Mm. And and, yeah, you know, an awful lot of people left the live world to go and work in the broadcast world. So, uh, uh, you know, the the TV and film industry is absolutely booming in the UK at the moment. So we've lost a lot of talent uh, 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 to that world, which is completely understandable. But, um, you know, festivals are are booming too. So we need to we need we need to get that um, conveyor belt of, of young people coming into into the festival world
0: and, you know, we won't touch too much on COVID cause I'm sure we've uh, we've all heard enough of it, but, you know, being on in the production side of events is is tough. You know, you're kind of you're facing so many high pressure situations where you've kind of got to keep a calm head. So what are the summer? Have you got a kind of way that you approach situations or have you got a mindset that you, you try and stick to when it comes to really, you know, I guess it's crisis management a lot of the time, isn't it on site? How do you how do you find you handle those situations?
1: Unfortunately, crises are part and parcel of of, of being outdoors and and, and dealing with uh, customers and and the weather. Um, You know, it it, it clearly gets easier the older you get and the more experience you get. Um, And decision-making, I think, is a critical part of, of what I do. So when I'm an event director, you know, on on a large show such as part Life or or, or Kendall Courtney or Blue Dot, you know, you've got to make decisions, you know, and you've got to make them very quickly um, at times, um, and clearly you've got to try and make the right ones. Um, so, part of that process is is by getting the right information around you at, at the right time um, and, and trying to get as much data and information um, um, as possible. Um, And clearly with technology that 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 has got much easier Um, so you can try and make, you know, safety critical decisions, you know, as informed as possible. Um, So I think that that, that's crucial. And, you know, things that I, I mean, it might be around weather. So in the past, you know, clearly electrical storms are a big challenge. So you don't want lightning near your festival site. Or if you do have lightning near your festival site, you've got to do various things. So you might do need to show stops so you know these days you got things like lightning maps on on on, <laughs> on uh, which is a website which will shoot detail you know its lightning strikes so it's just having some information like that and and weather data is absolutely uh, crucial to a lot of um uh, decision making uh, on a festival, but it might be all o- o- other data that, you know, it, it, how many people are arriving, flow rates arriving at your festival would dictate how your gates are operating. Capacities of stages will know how your site, um, um, uh, in terms of crowd movements on site, um, uh, that will inform some decision makings around around crowd management uh, and the like. But one of the crucial things is, of course, is having the the right team around you. And having the right experienced people in 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 the right roles, and and, and leaning on those, um, and those individuals. I mean, during the lifetime of a festival, what we'll do is have E.L.T. meetings. Um, so those happen um, every six hours through the through the lifetime of, of a show, where all the heads of the department come together, um, and that's a little snapshot of of of, of how we're doing. Uh, any problems anywhere? Any problems foreseeable? You know, is the weather going to deteriorate? Any offsite issues? Any issues with trains? Um, because they all impact on, on on how you how you run a show. So for instance the other year part life due to you know a, a fatality off offsite at a Metrolink station. We lost the Metrolink. We, you the know, MetroLink takes away eighteen thousand people away from park life. You've, you've got to make some decisions very quickly mm. about what you're going to do, how you're going to communicate that out to your audience, how you're going to manage it as people leave the site, um, and of course you need to do that in a multi-agency um, way because it's not just you working in a silo on your on your festival site. You need to be talking to the police. Transport for Greater Manchester, you might be talking to talk into your, your PR and social media team to broadcast that message. So it's making sure you've got that, that those right people in the right place at the right time.
0: And it sounds like technology is one of the biggest changes and I guess one of the big, uh, biggest things that's helped you deliver what, what you need to and you know, thinking of everything back from from where you started off in the 80s and in theatre all the way up to everything you've done up until this point, what have been the biggest shifts and changes that you've seen? Everything from culture to technology to just, yeah, I guess how the scene has been.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's changed significantly and and, and for the better, um, you know, in, in, in the late eighties, early nineties, you know, safety was, was hardly, uh, as high on the agenda as it is now. So there's safety practices, procedures, and, and the whole approach to safety um, is you know it's now sort of front and center um where where it certainly wasn't back then um and you know entertainment technology you know lighting and video you know it, you never had video in 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 the 80s we we had these two archaic video screens in the hacienda and that was as much as video went <laughs> and when you look at you know the, the types of shows that we are delivering at part life these days, with with LED screens, you know, it's it's mind blowing how how far entertainment technology uh, has come along, and a lot of it's for the better. Um, you know, the the amount of power that we used to use on on lighting rigs on the road uh, in the '90s, where everything was tungsten, and you had these highly um, uh, uh, um, you know, you had thousands of stro—well, not hundreds of strobes. that used to use an inordinate amount of power. Um, now with LED technology, it's a lot cleaner. It's it's a lot more sustainable, um, and the way you can control lighting and sound. So, you know, that that technology aspect, is, uh, uh, and it continues to to develop uh, 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 and change. Then, aside from that, you know, the actual experience for the customers changed considerably like we were saying before about the on-site experience, you know, at festival um, 15, 20 years ago, it was chemical toilets and that was about it. You know, the toilet experience has moved on considerably. The boutique camping experience. um, Food, I mean, 15 years ago, it was burgers, burgers, burgers. And now the, uh, uh, you know, the food that you can expect on a festival site, know is as good as he can expect on the high street
0: and how do you see because i imagine you can kind of sense when when these changes are happening do you think things are going to change even more in the next five or ten years where where do you see it heading
1: yeah i mean entertainment technology is you know is constantly uh, evolving and changing you know and a lot of that is driven by talent as well because you know talent want to deliver shows which are um you know, better, different, bigger than, than, than ever before. Um, I think clearly trying to make our industry more sustainable is at the front and centre of everybody's minds, you know, certainly at the moment. Um, you know, some people have been doing a, a great job uh, over a number of years within our industry, but as a whole, we really need to focus and come together and look at how we can make some step changes um, and start meeting some some you know realistic targets to to try and get get our carbon use uh, down. So I think that is going to drive innovation as well. So this year, for the start, we we started using a new uh, cabin um, um, uh, uh, supplier where we can we, where we can get 20 porter cabins delivered on two trucks because they come flat pack. And you know it's innovation like that which is going to gonna drive forward over the next few years in, in, in my view.
0: And you can see it from I guess Ravers and festival goers are getting younger and younger, of course. Um and the the kind of younger they are, they're, they're so much more conscious about environmental issues and sustainability. And you, like I can feel it from from the marketing side as well. People are asking big questions, you know, when when events are happening, the customers are looking into these things. So it's it's kind of been driven very much from 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 the ticket buyers as well. But I can see that um yeah I guess when you really think of the scale of how many festivals happen as well it's something that does um that does need to change I feel like a theme throughout your whole journey has really been right place right time domino effect Gareth Cooper usually popping up with <laughs> with something <laughs> at some point have you had any um any places where you've maybe been wrong place wrong time took the wrong turn done a project that didn't go as, as planned
1: oh we you know I've had my fair share of of, of of crises that haven't gone particularly well um, um, you know festival number no. six was always a challenge but you know there's there one infamous year where uh, I, t- I took a very wrong call about a car park and we and we used a car park adjacent to a river with some with a weather forecast which wasn't great but I didn't realize it was going to be as bad as, uh, as it was um, and We'd had probably one of the toughest days on a festival site I've, I've ever had. Um, it was the tail end of one of these hurricanes um, coming over. So we had high, high winds uh, and relatively heavy rain. Um, heavy, heavy rain you can normally deal with on, on, on a festival. Um, wind, wind is not your friend on a festival um, because most temporary demountable structures, so stages, marquees, etc., cetera, are, are are only um, suitable for certain wind speeds. So I, I, I spent the whole of this Saturday uh, with my team, constantly closing stages, um, um, dealing with damaged structures, um, uh, just trying to keep the festival in, 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 alive, as it were, trying to keep it going, um, which which we did. And we managed to get the headline act away on the main stage. and. Um by, by three o'clock in the morning, I thought we'd, 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 we'd got through it. And uh, I was enjoying a, a glass of red wine in, in the production office when I got the phone call to say i better come down to have a look at the Park and Ride car park. And uh, Park and Ride car park was about a mile away from the site. Um, all the customers parked there. It was adjacent to a river. And uh, when I arrived, well, I stopped on the dual carriageway, looked over the, the car park and on one of the car park fields, which had about 600 cars in it, all I could see was water and car roofs, which was quite a sobering, uh, um, um, quite shocking uh, view, to be honest. So um, that that led to a very, very difficult seven days <laughs> because um, we... We couldn't get the cars out that easily, and um, there was a lot of customers displaced. There was a lot of upset customers, and um, it was, yeah, quite a large crisis.
0: And how how did you get through it? How are you keeping yourself motivated?
1: Um, you know, with we, we, a team of Angie, um, and just trying to be as, as, I don't know, as, you know, you've got to treat it as another challenge and, you know, just some dogged determination to get through this thing Um, and, you know, that that was four o'clock in the morning I knew there was nothing I could do that night so I took the call to to basically go to bed and get as much sleep as I I can. I think that's really important, you know, in our industry, you can end up getting fatigued. When you get fatigued, you end up making sometimes the wrong decision. So uh, I was determined to try and get some sleep and then assemble the team to make a plan um, uh, the following morning. And I decided that what we needed to do was, uh, I needed to leave my second in command to run the festival. And I needed to move down to the car park and assemble a a a management team of how we're going to try and deal with what was a huge mess. You've Um,
0: you've got the customers to think about, of course, but then you've also got to put a brave face on for the team and kind of lead lead from the front in that way as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And they're looking to you to to make the decisions. Um, Sometimes you, you do come across these challenges, which. You know, you you can't look at back on experience because it's a completely new experience. And with with that car park, it was, you know, I I ended up having to do things I never thought would end up having to do on a festival, which was uh, ask the local authority to open a a leisure centre for a respite area for customers because they couldn't get their cars, they couldn't leave site. So um, we opened um, the local um, leisure centre. and I remember halfway we had we had the most of north wales's farming community coming down with tractors to try and earn as much money by pulling people out so just trying to manage that was a huge challenge and i do remember a customer saying when are you going to bring the army in And i did think if i knew how to call the army in i probably would call the army in but uh, I, as it happened we we got through it you know a few, huge team effort uh, and we got through that um, and you know, unfortunately, I've had other weather-related, you know, festival incidents where it, it, you know, it. There's nothing you can do about the weather, you know. So if the weather turns, and you not, you aren't in the right, you don't have the right infrastructure, or your site's not in the right place at the right time. Then you know, the 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 weather can win. Uh, and unfortunately, I think moving forward with the way that the climate change is 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 clearly affecting. Um, uh, affecting us then you know that's going to be one of the challenges moving forward for festival organizers and festival producers like myself is is how can we make our, our festival sites more more robust and and, and deal with those extremes of, of of weather i mean the other the other crisis is is sort of brought on by by the customers and you know by by their behavior and um you know unfortunately over the years i've been I've had to deal with the the effects of uh, uh, substance uh, use and, you know, which doesn't work out well in some time, in some cases. Uh, And I've had to pick up the pieces when we've had drug fatalities, um, which, you know, are are very, very difficult uh, incidents to deal with because I'm there trying to deliver a festival for young people to have a great time uh and to go away with, with happy memories and instead they're they're going um going to hospital and ending up um um dead um which is certainly what you know none of us are in, in the game for um and you know that, that, that incident is never easy. And certainly out off the back of that um type of incident that that's led to my working with Professor Meesham who who started the Loop uh and I'm now very proud to be a, a director of the loop, because I think it's clear that, you know, there's nothing that I can do uh, to stop, or anyone can do to stop young people taking, taking drugs. Um, and whilst we try and do our damnedest to stop people taking drugs into a festival site, you know, you can't be naive to think that we can, we can prevent that happening. So what can we do uh, to stop people ending up dying or, or becoming seriously ill in a hospital? And that's you know, educating, and you know the work that the 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 loop do in terms of harm reduction education is is, is simply brilliant. Um, and the the best way you can educate people is by understanding what what drugs are in circulation on a festival site. Um, and um, the you know the, the testing that, that we have on on site at uh, festivals, you know, it goes back to my point about having you know intelligence or having data or having as much information as possible. And that's just another tool in the box about having information about what drugs are in circulation, because that can help you treat people. So you can, you know, it can help our medical team or our welfare team treat people if they're presenting with certain symptoms. But, but, but quite crucially, it means that we can do early warning messages out to the to to the customers about a drug that might be in circulation. And you know, the thing with the festival world is as well is we, you know, we are, you know, there's quite a wide festival family and, um, you know, we, we're very good at sharing uh, uh, information. So um, you know, if, if we get intelligent about drug on one site, you know, we will share that with other festivals as well uh, and, and vice versa, because as much as we can do to to, to, to you know educate young people, um, um, you know, the, the better. And off the back of that, um, I found it quite frustrating. Quite a lot of young people coming to festivals, first time festival goers coming really ill-equipped and then ending up in welfare, needing, needing equipment where you just think, well, why didn't you bring a torch? Why, you know, why haven't you, why are you coming flip-flops to a festival? (laughs) Um, So, um, so I I started this, this website called festivalsafe.com, which is, gives top tips for festival goers. And it's not just, it's not not just first timers, um, because you find, I think one of the reasons why the festival industry has grown the way it has in the UK is, because of the way people have grown up with festivals. Um, and, you know, people now... Festivals used to be just something you used to go to when you were a teenager or in your 20s. Um, but because festivals now developed, you know, now you go, now you take your kids to festivals. Now there's family festivals where kids go. So, yeah, so Festival Safe, you know, he's got top tips there for, you know, if you're taking kids for the first time to a festival of things you should remember, like Air Defenders and stuff. So
0: Amazing. Yeah. incredible so some big learning curves along the way um and a lot of challenges i guess you've you've learned from moving forward taking into account everything you've you've achieved so far and i'm sure you'll you'll go on to achieve even more what what have been your your secrets to success How how have you done it
1: surrounding myself by really good people um, you know, I've been very, very fortunate in, 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 you know, working with some really great people and continue to do so on a, on, on, on a, on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, I, I never stop learning, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's incredible. You know, every, every festival bring up a, a new challenge or a new experience that, I've, uh, that I haven't, uh, experienced before. Um, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I'm constantly at, you know, everyone's trying to strive to improve, and you know I I am too, and we're just constantly trying to improve. You know the safety aspects of a festival and the experience at a festival, um. So that that's something that we, we 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 which keeps keeps on going.
0: Okay, nice, and then. To so wrap it up, I want to ask what's your what your end goal because I think you've you've ticked off a lot of things. Is there anything left on your list to to, to tick off? or where do you want to get to? Well,
1: you know I've, I've, I'm really enjoying this, the the building things, which which might last a bit longer than a festival. Um, I'm, I'm I'm certainly very keen to get. Back in the fields um, uh, next year, twenty twenty two, and try and deliver a full festival season for the first time in a couple of years. Um, Blue Dot in particular, um, you know, Jodrell Banks just 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 an incredible sight, and Blue Dot's a great festival. So really looking forward to get getting that show um, uh, 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 away uh, again, um, and you know, trying to. Trying to bring forward some of my ideas about trying to educate and and train young people and and get you know, uh, you know new new blood, you know into our industry because it's it's a it's a great industry to work in. You can meet friends for life uh, in it, um, and I think you know the opportunity I had right at the beginning of my career was because you know the palace theatre would give me a chance by doing some work experience. And and if I hadn't had that, you know, I I don't know what would have happened, really. So, um, you know, there's lots of work experience opportunity in, in, in the industry. And it's something I say to lots of people is you need to, you know, knock on the door and keep keep on knocking. If you want to work on festivals, you know, there's, you know, people are crying out for people to work on festivals. You might have to start, you know, uh, you know, right at the bottom up, you know, do some volunteer roles. But by getting your foot in the door, you start to meet people. And you know, it, it's off meeting people, you'll, you'll, you'll get those bigger breaks.
0: Yeah, I was the same started on the dance floor, networking, we record selling tickets, flyering. Uh, got the opportunity to to work with Ed Rob and Ollie kind of in the warehouse project office and then Mustard Media started so it, it literally is networking is as as you say it's the domino effect of one person it leads to another opportunity and you've been able to achieve everything that you have to, done really from from connecting with people listen John thank you so much for coming in it's been incredible to listen to you I could I could listen to you all day um and yeah I just love love everything you've achieved and I'm sure you'll uh, you'll go on to, to even bigger and better things. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Sean. Nice one.